Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight. The conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. A good reminder for us as we begin to look at parables to uh, to remi- remind ourselves of what Jesus was trying to do. When Jesus told parables, he wasn't simply giving sermon illustrations that could uh, just sort of give a little fun and life to the important theological points he had already made, but rather parables were how Jesus actually taught. Uh, as Paul can say, that we are instructed by music in Colossians chapter 3. So we can say that Jesus instructed his disciples by telling them parables. And what he did when he told a parable is he created an imaginary world, a fictional world, a world surely that is connected to the first century Galilean uh, life. But at the same time, he creates a, a little fictional story that listeners enter into by following Jesus' words, and in entering into the story, they begin to imagine a world that is different than the world in which they live, a world that is shaped by the kingdom of God. So kingdom roots were established by Jesus every time he told a parable. He dug a new root for his disciples to understand what the kingdom of God was all about. And this parable of the unforgiving servant is surely one of the most provocative ones he ever tells. Peter has come to Jesus and said, you know, how many times should I forgive someone? Should I forgive someone uh, up to seven times? And and I'm, I'm confident, I'm putting... Um, motives and intentions and thoughts into Peter's mind. But it sure seems from the text that Peter believes he's really going out on a limb, the edge of the diving board, you know, the edge of the cliff to say seven times. And Peter's, and Jesus responds, no, not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven, which would, either way, it's way beyond Peter's expectations. And the essential story that Jesus then tells is that, and he says in our English translations, and I'm using the NIV here, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, he is also saying, imagine a world like this. And it's a story of a king who wants to settle account with servants. And one servant um, owes uh, 10,000 bags of gold, and he was not able to pay it. And this allowed the master both to exercise power over the man, but the servant falls uh, and exercise mercy. The servant falls on his knees, and the king forgives him. And then that servant goes out and becomes very unforgiving for a small debt. And then the king holds this king, uh, this servant, accountable. So that's the parable we want to look at today. And I thought I would start with Chaz. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and Chaz, I wanted to ask you, 
um, how you understand the big idea. What is Jesus trying to get us to imagine when he tells this parable? Yeah, thanks, Scott. You know, it's kind of fun to be on this side of the um, the podcast for, for a change um, and getting oh, questions I, I, my way. I forgot something here. We have two uh, students with us today from <laughs> Northern. Chaz Robbins, who is the host uh, of this Kingdom Roots podcast, and Nate Ray, who is a pastor in Minneapolis. And both are fantastic students, and both are working on this parable for a publication that we as a group are working on. So uh, I, I, I forgot to say that, but uh, we're going to hear from Nate here in a minute. But we'll start again with Chaz. Yeah. So the you know the question about what is the parable about? What's the main idea? Um, as I've been wrestling through it and, and trying to narrow it down, uh, I think one way we could say the main idea is that um, forgiveness isn't freedom until we use our forgiveness to free others, and that's just the the, the nature and the direction of how God's ultimately God's forgiveness in our life works. That um, unless we begin to see how much we're forgiven from, um, we really still can be in bondage to the things that God has already chosen to release us from in our life, and uh, our response in that releasing in forgiveness from God should to be in turn go out and, and do it to others and, and to act as God has acted um, for us and how he views us and how he loves us. And um, truthfully, that's the most freeing life that we could ever live uh, and and what we need to embrace. And so I think in Jesus' is like you said, Scott, how he uses stories and these parables to teach, uh, he's really emphasizing the fact that um, God ha- has forgiven us so much that there's nobody who could ever forgive us more than God has forgiven us. And now in response to that, um, our call is um, to be challenged to, to forgive others in response and, um, and, and to imagine a world where this is perpetuated in, in our daily life, in our interactions with any and everybody that we come in contact with. Yeah, and and clearly this parable moves from God's enormous, uh, or the man's, the servant's enormous debt, and therefore God's matching enormous forgiveness, Mm -hmm. and requirement for seeming absolute contradiction uh, between being forgiven and becoming an unforgiving person. So I I wonder, Nate, if you have something to add to the essential point that uh, Chaz has made. And it's it's not, again, I want to emphasize that, like Jesus is saying, now what I'd really like to do is teach people about reciprocal forgiveness, but they won't get it if I just make a statement. I want to tell a story about it. Uh, so I'll, I'll make up this story. It, it's more than that, is that we, the story dramatizes a point, sure, an idea, sure, but the story initiates us into the experience of this in a way that transforms our learning from simply uh, an illustration to a deeper sense of theology. But I wonder, I wonder, Nate, if you have something you want to add to that. Um, I, I, I don't know if I, I have something I want to add necessarily. I, I think uh, Chaz's uh, point is very punchy. In fact, once he told me that line, forgiveness isn't freedom until we use our forgiveness to free others, I thought, 
Wow, that's so. So I that I I think I think that's great. But I really love this parable, and one of the reasons I really love it is because it is it is so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, um, I, I I have not. I cannot remember hearing someone in an evangelical tradition handle Jesus's words um, in a sermon when he says. If you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. I cannot remember hearing a sermon be being preached on that because I think that is a really difficult and hard saying of Jesus's, and I see this as an unpacking of that um, statement of Jesus's earlier in Matthew. Um, I, I'll, I'll just add there that that is stated as a sort of a little commentary on the Lord's prayer, forgive, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive uh, others of their sins or trespasses. And at the end of that, in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, is a, like a little parenthetical note, for if you don't forgive other people's sins, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. So yes, um, you're, you may very well be right uh, because of the, uh, about Preacher's not talking about this, so I want you to develop this. Right. <clears throat> I think people are very uncomfortable with this because it um, it feels as though um, it, it feels it, it it feels as though uh, God's forgiveness is conditional on our forgiveness is what what that statement I think feels like to people and so I think that creates a sense of tension and dis discomfort um, and I think <clears throat> when you look at this parable you just realize that God's forgiveness is towards us is intended to produce a certain type of person and as you are saying and as we are working on in this book god's forgiveness towards us is intended to produce a certain type of world and so there is no as god god wants god will protect that world that he is creating and that his forgiveness is intended to produce by keeping unforgiveness out of it and um and so i've just been uh, I think that's I think that's hard. I think this is a leveling parable too, because I think a lot of times we like to think in categories of good people and bad people. And this parable says, "Hey, listen up, everybody. Um, we all at times struggle with unforgiveness, but you you got to realize this is a big deal. This 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 sort of levels the playing field. All of a sudden, we're not talking about good guys and bad guys, but we're talking about you and me." Um, and so, uh, for that reason, I find this parable incredibly, uh, profound, um, as well, um, inviting us to look inward and, and, and honestly ask, are we harboring unforgiveness? Yeah. You know, I think kind of one of the, the functions of, of forgiveness that, uh, we can see play through the parable and in, in, in the world that Jesus is inviting us to is kind of like forgiveness being the ticket into this greater journey of the world that Jesus is calling and inviting us to be a part of. Um, because it's, it's not all said and done once the forgiveness happens or, or whatever is released, debts are, uh, forgiven. Um, it's not that there's not more to the 
story. It's really just the beginning of the story. And um, when we view the, the opportunity that we have to forgive others, and I think what, what, what Jesus can be inviting us to, like I said, is, is this opportunity to, to be a part of a journey that is continual, that is greater than just that moment of forgiveness when it happens. Okay, now, um, I think, and, and I think you're, you guys are both getting right at the heart of the tension that many of us as Protestants and evangelical types feel when, or experience when we read this parable. But a recent book that I consider one of the great books uh, in my lifetime as an academic professor uh, was by John Barclay called Paul and the Gift. And this is really a study of the idea of grace in the ancient world. And there are some stunning observations in this book about what grace was like in the, in the Roman, the Greek, and the Jewish worlds, and how people experienced it, and what it entailed. For instance, for many people today, uh, they see this parable and they say, this, this is against the idea of grace. Because it looks like our forgiveness is conditional, just as Nate just said, is conditional upon our forgiveness. And that doesn't sound like grace because people think grace means pure gift. Mm -hmm. And not only is it pure gift, it's the priority of God, the abundance and superabundance of God giving to us something we don't deserve, for which we can do nothing and we do nothing to get it. And as a result of that, it's, it just uh, elicits from us nothing more than, or, or especially the sense of gratitude. But John Barclay has demonstrated that in the Greco-Roman world and in the Jewish world, that when someone gave you a gift, often called a benefaction, uh, some kind of gift, it, it, it created something. It created a relationship and a world. And the, and the first part of it is it creates a social bond between the giver and the one who receives the gift. Upon and by receiving the gift, the person becomes, uh, uh, develops a new relationship with the giver. Furthermore, it not only does it create a social bond, but receiving a gift, creates the need and the obligation to respond with a reciprocal gift. Mm -hmm. So Seneca, a great Roman philosopher, roughly contemporary with the Apostle Paul, when Paul is talking about grace so often, said that, that gift-giving, grace, is like playing catch. And that is, I throw you the ball, and you catch it, and you throw it back to me. And I take into consideration the kind of throw that I can make to you on the basis of your skills of catching. So I play catch with my son, who was a professional baseball player, and I play catch with my grandson, Axel, who's a six-year, seven-year-old, uh, and, and he's not so gifted as my older son, so I, can't, I have to throw to Axel in a different way. But on both of them, I expect them to throw it back. And, and Lucas, my son, throws it back accurately. And my grandson is learning to throw the ball accurately. 
But this is, this is the model of grace in the ancient world, namely that when I give you a gift, when I act graciously toward you, then I have formed a relationship with you in such that my graciousness becomes a, uh, a transformative element in you as a character and in me as a character so that you become obligated at some level to respond in kind as the, as the necessary and as the inevitable way someone who receives a gift responds to the gift itself. And once one understands that understanding of grace, this text is not in tension with grace. It is actually a perfect illustration of grace in the ancient world. And sure, uh, there is an abundance and a priority of grace in this, in this parable. And I don't know how much uh, you guys have explored this, but the servant owed 10,000 talents. And in our great commentary source, Klein Snodgrass, I think he, he says that this is the, uh, an approximate uh, amount of labor would be 164 to 250,000 years of labor to pay off that big of a debt. Yeah, that's so what he says. Yeah. Ridiculous, you know, and that's a, an LOL moment, you know. So I wonder, I wonder if you guys have explored uh, this parable along the lines of grace uh, because of the tension that it creates. Well, I, I, I was just going to uh, say it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I love Jesus' style here and that he creates such an incredible amount that it is, it's laughable. And then how this guy goes out and basically, uh, uh, chokes a guy uh, like grabs a guy and uh, uh, tells him to pay back pennies that he owes him like the 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 the, the contrast between the two amounts is 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 wild uh, i love how jesus tells that story um i i, I don't know how much this fits scott but i've been thinking about a specific story i heard once i uh heard this parable and it it's a story about a guy named hector black and I listened to uh, some different storytelling podcasts, and I heard this story about Hector Black. And Hector Black is a Quaker, and uh, he had a daughter who um, was adopted into their family, lived in inner city Atlanta. And um, and this daughter, one night, her house was broken into, and she she stumbled in as it was happening. And there was a guy that was high on drugs, and he he. Uh, he killed her, and he took advantage of her. Um, and um, and Hector hears about this, and his first reaction to this atrocity is, "I want to kill this guy. I want to kill him." Mm-hmm. But the but 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 the guy was caught. He was tried, and the family asked that he not be given the death penalty. And then at his sentencing. Um, there were people who had really awful words for the murderer of his daughter, uh, words of hate. I hate you. I, I, I hope you never have a good moment the rest of your life. Just really awful things said to him. But, I mean, you could understand where that anger comes from. But when it was Hector's turn to speak, 
he had a statement prepared and he said to this guy, he said, I don't hate you, but I hate with all my heart what you did to my daughter. But then he goes on to say, I forgive you. I, I forgive you and I pray that you would find God's peace. And later that night, Hector can't sleep. And the murder of his daughter was in tears after Hector spoke to him. Mm-hmm. And he can't sleep. And so he writes this guy a letter. He writes him a letter. And Hector, just Hector, Hector writes the murderer of his daughter a letter that night. Mm-hmm. And they begin a relationship <laughs> where they write to each other. And around Christmas that year, Hector and his wife send the murderer of his daughter a Christmas gift. <laughs> and he thinks, oh my gosh, what am I doing? You know, but, and then a few, uh, t- some time elapses and they eventually meet the murderer of their daughter in prison and they have a long conversation with him. And, uh, and a friendship develops with the murderer of their daughter to the point where Hector describes that encounter in the jail as I felt like giving him a hug. (laughs) I felt like hugging him. Mm -hmm. And so you see, um, and then Hector says one more thing when he's telling this story. He talks about how him and his wife attend support groups of people that are the recipients or connected to recipients of really awful crimes. Mm -hmm. And he says there was a woman in his support group who said, who when she shared about the murder of her brother, He said she shared with such anger as if it had happened the day before, and it was 15 years later. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's no way to live. Mm -hmm. And so Hector, in this moving story, talks about how forgiveness is the the way— it's it is the way to live. He says when you when you harbor unforgiveness, he says you take poison and you expect the other person to die. Mm-hmm. And wow. so when I heard this story and I'm imagining a world, the world created by forgiveness and the world created by unforgiveness. That story for me gives this parable even more life because you see someone who had every right to shake their fist in defiance and hold on to unforgiveness, but instead forgives in a relationship is created in a friendship. Uh, it's wild, but like the murder of his daughter, his life yeah. is changed. Hector's yeah. life is changed. And then this woman in her support group who will not forgive mm-hmm. her life, that what unforgiveness does, the world that unforgiveness creates is hell. Yeah, yeah. And so um, that is something that I've been really turning over that I think gives this, the story of Hector Black gives this parable, it, 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 to me it puts flesh and blood mm-hmm. on, on this parable that Jesus is telling. And you see it playing out in, in real time, in real life. Yeah, I mean, Nate, that is a fantastic story. And, you know, we, we heard the similar story of the Amish in Pennsylvania after the murder of the children 
who immediately went to the to the murderer's home and made sure the wife and the children were taken care of. And this, I think, is precisely what Jesus is teaching us here. I don't think Jesus is teaching us that things don't matter, that injustice doesn't matter, that violence is okay because we're going to forgive afterwards, but that there are that we are called to respond to acts of injustice against ourselves or against our family in a way that transforms our reality from a system of vengeance to a system of grace. And I think it was uh, Philip Yancey who talked about systems of ungrace and systems of grace. And that is uh, that that by Hector, by responding with grace, transformed the murderer from someone you know who was a murderer and violent and angry into a person who could be receptive of gifts. Yes. And so I think that 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 grace. This is what a point I think that uh, Klein Snodgrass makes. Uh, forgiveness. On uh, forgiveness unshown is forgiveness unknown yeah. mm-hmm. because he, he teaches that once we have been forgiven, we experience the character of a gracious and merciful God. Mm-hmm. It is designed to make us gracious and merciful toward others. And so if we are ungracious and unforgiving toward other people, it is a sign that God's grace and God's forgiveness have not penetrated deeply enough into our character. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, Nate, that is just a fantastic story. And, and I agree with you that it puts flesh and blood on the parable of Jesus, which has, you know, it's, it's a dramatic little story, but this one uh, is living and real in our world, and we see exactly what happens. Yes, you know, well, I yeah. think to go back to the, you know what you're talking about with reciprocity in, in that story that um, when we're forgiven and this grace that we're talking about, it's not just that we're saved from something, but we're saved yeah. for something and yeah. t- to live a certain way and to embody uh, the, the certain world that Jesus is calling us to, to imagine and, and live into. And the, the, where, the place where I see anyway reciprocity coming into that is Hector in that story knows God so much more because of his willingness to be like God and to befriend his daughter's killer. And um, when when we do not just accept grace to save us from something, but to, to save us for something, uh, we continually deepen our relationship with God and experiencing that grace like you were talking about and his character and his goodness and his mercy. And when when we do express it and show it to others, um, we in turn understand and experience God deeper in our own lives, which is, is something that, that only comes into play when we're willing to do that. And the contrast, um, the other direction, the other decision, um, of course, is like Nate said, that own hell that we create for ourselves um, and uh, that, that sometimes we, we face because of our unwillingness to forgive as God has forgiven us. You know, I wonder, um, and this is not something that 
I've ever written about, I, I mention and I think about occasionally and I touch upon in, in stuff I'm reading. I'm reading a really interesting book by John Sanders right now on theology in the flesh. What, what happens to our understanding of God? What happens to our understanding of relations with others? What happens to our understanding of forgiveness when we, number one, forgive someone, and number two, embody that forgiveness in some concrete act. Does that take forgiveness now to a completely different level, to a deeper level, to a higher level, to a wider level, because we not only have read about it and believed it, but actually done it? And it makes me wonder sometimes if our inability or unwillingness to forgive others is simply a reflection that we have not seen enough of embodied forgiveness on the part of other people in our church mm-hmm. or in our world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just, just a thought I'm tossing out there for you and for our listeners to think about. What difference, what happens to us in our understanding of God's forgiveness and our own forgiveness when we actually embody it? Does it, does it take it to a new level? Yeah, I I was thinking as Chaz and you were both talking, Scott, just about how a lot of our uh, most Christians we would say we would confess that we want to grow and we want to become more Christ-like, but often the the path towards Christ-likeness, <laughs> often like all the time, yeah. the path towards Christ-likeness is a hard path. Like to like to be formed into a forgiving person. It's and a cross to, we have to pick up and carry. Yes. And, yes. Yeah. And that's yeah. tough. Yeah. C.S. Lewis uh, made the quip. I've, I've used this a hundred times in talking. Forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. <laughs> yeah. And it is, it is in the act of forgiving uh, that we, we, discover the, we discover what Christ is like what God is like, and what it means to be Christ-like. Suddenly we say, wow, what I just experienced there, what I just did there, because I enacted forgiveness towards someone who had offended me, um, uh, was was a revelatory moment. You know, I, I, I also want to say, sometimes I think we get a little uh, careless about this idea of forgiveness. Let's Let's just say, from the outset, that our goal in broken relationships is reconciliation, and our goal in fractured relationships uh, starts with forgiveness. Mm-hmm. But we also realize in the world in which we live that it takes two people for forgiveness actually to occur. And it, it is profoundly unwise at times to forgive someone who is unrepentant it's some that we cannot make restitution and restoration and reconciliation with some people until they've acknowledged and told the truth about the thing they have done. But I don't think that this means we can't initiate, um, let's say, forgiveness of that person. We can forgive someone in this world without it ever creating reconciliation. And I read a a wonderful book on this by Leslie Leyland Fields about forgiving our mothers and fathers or our parents. Uh, And she tells some 
just horrific stories about what she's been through in her life, what her sisters have been through, or what her family has been through. And it brings to full clarity that forgiveness is not simply an act, but it is a process that involves dialectical relationships with others. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Jesus is only pressing here upon the point that human beings are instinctively and innately desirous of vengeance. And, And God is not like that, and God is forgiving. And so we, in our processes of being offended, need to realize that the aim is forgiveness and reconciliation. And, you know, both of you have worked in churches where you've, yeah. you've seen fractured relationships mm-hmm. and you know what, the, what is involved here. So I'll, we're running short on time here, so I'll kind of just give, I guess, my closing thought, and you guys jump in on, on yours as well. But I think in relation to that, Scott, um, when, when we begin that journey and um, that call that Jesus seems to be inviting us to in this story is um, what I think it sheds light on for us personally and where we are individually is um, what's controlling us. And um, when you have to begin to wrestle through forgiveness, I think it's a it's an indicator of is that vengeance that's controlling me, or am I really allowing God to to control my life and the decisions that I make and, and how I live? Um, because if I'm willing to to take that first step to restoration and to reach out to that other person and forgive, not always knowing how the, the rest of the the journey and story will unfold, but it it reveals the reality of Jesus being my king and the one who is in control over my life and my willingness to submit to him and live like him. And so that's, I think, you know, that's just another thing that, that sums up the story and the, the, the call and the invitation to that reciprocal grace is, uh, is answering and, and being aware of what is controlling me. Because if I'm not willing to forgive, then often something other than God is controlling my life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Nate, you have any closing thoughts? Uh, I think Chas summed it up pretty well right okay. there. Yeah, I think he did. So um, this is a parable that invites us uh, into uh, a beautiful scenario that the more we enter into the imagined world of the kingdom that Jesus gives to us, the more demanding this little parable becomes. And instead of being cute and clever and oh so idealistic, it becomes a profound challenge to how we carry out our relationships uh, with others, particularly in our closer relationships where we are struggling with reconciliation and forgiveness. So, so Chaz and Nate, it was great to be with you today. And uh, this is a great parable to remind us of the call of Christ in our life. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Nate, for being with us. No problem. Thank you, guys. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us again for another episode. Uh, we're always grateful to hear from you um, on iTunes or whatever way that you get the podcast. We'd love to get a review from you. Just take a, a, a minute there and uh, let us know what you think. That helps uh, us know what's meaningful, what's resonating. Uh, and also those just kind of looking out to, to see if maybe they'd, they'd be interested in um, our conversations. So again, we're grateful for you and look forward to being with you 
next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 